We're going to look at, well, this is really lesson two on discipling. Um, let me just give a running start into this, and then we'll, we'll have, is it two years ago now about? We started Rooted. Um, and really the goal there was to get our, our whole church engaged in discipling one another and encouraging each other. So having gone through two years, I recognize that there are some people who are doing meetings and engaged with one another, and there may not be a lot of productive work going on in some of those meetings. And so we really want to just help you think through and capture uh, in simple form some of your goals and your agendas when you're meeting with someone and trying to disciple them, or frankly, even your goals and agendas as you're being discipled. Uh, so uh, let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump into lesson two here. So let's start with praying. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that it is sufficient both to equip us to be helping others to follow after Jesus, as well as helping us to see how we can follow Christ himself. I ask that you would strengthen our church, that we would be both making disciples and helping them to incorporate within the church, as well as follow all the commands of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us so that we would press after Christ to be conformed to his image in all things, to be renewed in our minds and strengthened in our spirits to comprehend the vast love of Christ. Uh, Lord, we need your grace for these things. We could never help anyone come to Christ, nor could we ourselves follow after him without uh, the grace, the strength, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit being poured out in our lives. So we, we plead. Be merciful to us, strengthen our hearts and minds, we pray for the task ahead of us, and even for understanding how to do the task. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so real simple, what is the definition for discipling someone? What, is, what does it mean to disciple someone? To teach them? That sounded like a question. That is, you're confident. Okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject that definition because you're assuming things, but you're not wrong. But your assumptions make it just not a good definition. So we've got to add more to it. What do we got? Oh, you're, you'll, 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 you'll kind of give me a duh moment in just a second when you hear the, where you're lacking in this definition. Anyone else want to jump in with a definition of discipleship? Yes, Andy. Okay. Helping someone grow in Christ-likeness. It's not teaching them, because if it's just teaching them, period, I mean, you could be teaching them two plus two is four. So we all know it's me, what you meant, and we, that's what I'm saying, you assume this, that you're teaching them about Christ, but I think it's more than just instruction. It's helping them to actually do what you're instructing them. So it's not just, it's not just knowledge, right? It's not just theology. It's actually practical too. So uh, if you're discipling someone, you're helping them to follow Christ fully. Maybe be another way we could say it. Um, I think because we don't untangle following Christ fully, when we meet with someone to help them and they're going through a hard time, sometimes our goals are simply to help the hard time end. Like, oh, you're having a really difficult time in, in raising your 19-year-old and, and they're just a really unkind person in the home. Well, here's some strategies that will help you. Like, do they need strategies? I mean, is, is, is God really wanting them to have a home of peace and that's it? Or is he trying to accomplish something about the child and the parent? Uh, so I, I think sometimes we come at that and we think our job is to solve a problem. Like, I'm having a financial job problem here. My job pays good, but it's miserable. And our counsel is sometimes about how to strategize career options. Well, career options are not the same as following Christ. 
So, so if we get that really simply, it, it, the simple idea, following Christ is the essence of what a disciple is. So when I'm discipling someone else, I'm helping them to follow Christ. I, I think we want to work through that a little more thoroughly, but that simple definition kind of, I think, keeps us on the rails throughout our whole uh, next two weeks. I want to take you, so you have this, this is kind of the core of the kind of outline for this morning, but I want to take you to the back side of that paper. We have two scriptures that I think are just so good on what it means to be involved in the process of discipleship. Let me take you to the Titus 2 passage first. This is all Titus 2, the whole chapter, I think. Um, so, so he's telling this young pastor, Titus, again, Titus is probably 30s. So when you think young pastor, don't think a 19, 20-year-old guy. Think, you know, young, middle-aged guy. You know, 30 to 40, somewhere in that window, probably. So apparently that no longer includes me. Um, I think when I, te- I preached through Titus, um, I was actually, by definition, a young, you know, like a young man, young pastor. Um, verse, uh, verse 1 there, the, the 2 there is actually Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So if I wanted to help someone follow after Christ, what's one of the things I need to be giving them? Sound doctrine. Now, you notice he didn't say deep. Sound means what? It's right it, like when you say someone, someone has sound thinking, their thinking is correct. Right? So sound doctrine. And then he, then he gives like these categories, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Right? So older men are to be sober, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Okay, so, so he's just giving characteristics right now. Like this is, this is what you're supposed to tell them. Tell them to be like this. But then look what he says right in the middle of verse 3. They, that is the older women, are to teach what is good and so train young women, and it's very practical here, how to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own households, that the word of God may not be reviled. so, So Titus has a very clear obligation to teach, or to teach the old women, and then by that, he's also training the younger women. Now, you notice that training is actually very much more practical. Right? It's like how to do this, not how to think this. How to love husbands, how to uh, work at home. And there's, there's no, no doubt in this sense that the primary keeper of the home is to be the wife, the mom. Right? That, that the Mr. Mom is actually, if, if the, the mom is abandoning the home or is, is shifting burden to her husband, is out of line, and older women should correct her. Right? And frankly, in this culture, tell me that's not needed in a culture of career women. All right, so who's supposed to train women to do that? Titus is supposed to train whom? Particularly, it says older women, and then the older women... And, and so I, I think by this, there's a sense in which the older women are doing and saying, let me show you and teach you, and thereby the word train. Like, it's a pedagogical term, right? Okay, so going forward, look at Titus then. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So you get verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. As he does this, then the church begins to 
reproduce others who are living and believing sound doctrine, but that's not enough. Titus, as a young man, must be very careful that he is not one of those people who's saying, do what I say, not as I do. He's actually able to say, do what I do. Um, so in all respects, be a model of good works. Not only does they say to what I do, but he should be able to say, <clears throat> all that I do. Right? Like Sometimes you, you meet someone who's really, really incredible with their kids and maybe a little bit neglectful of his wife. That's not acceptable for Titus. Or you meet someone who's super devoted to home and negligent of the church. That's not acceptable. Like His life has to be done in such a way that, at least we'd say generally, obviously all of us fall short of Christ. He is a model of good works in the totality of the way he's living. In fact, he says, and in your teaching, show integrity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned so that opponents may be put to shame. There's a sense in which Paul's very clearly telling Titus, you're on display. So, so the picture, and I've, I've said this before, but I think with Titus is he's not saying, you guys need to follow Jesus and kind of pushing them from behind, nor is he to act like he's way ahead of the flock, but as he's in and among the people of God, he's saying, come with me. Walk where I walk. Come along with me as I follow Christ. Then look in verse 11. It's not merely that Titus is an example. The grace of God, what's the grace of God in this text? It's more narrow than just big grace. What is it? He's particularly speaking to what? He's talking about the gospel, really, I think. I think Charity said salvation, but, I, but for thinking through that context, uh, salvation in the gospel is probably the most intense, clear display, not only of the character of God, but of the purposes of the gospel. Right, the purposes of salvation, that is, God sent his son to die for us, to save us, not merely from the penalty of sin, but from the doing of it. So you'll see that in this text here. The gospel trains us to do what? Renounce it. I, I think that's a stronger word than not do. Right? Like, if, if you have... If you have a, um, a guy who is, oh, I don't know, you're seeing this maybe politically. You have a guy who is, who is fairly loyal to um, a politician and something happens and the relationship fractures and then he renounces him publicly. It's more than just no longer being partner with him. There's a public rejection. There's a moving away from. There's a calling out and condemning even. You know, so there's a strong call for the Christian to stand apart from and condemn their former lifestyles and worldly desires or worldly passions. And instead, we're to live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives. And, and this is part of what the gospel teaches us, right? Verse 14, he gave himself to do what? To redeem us from this garbage. See, see how the gospel, the grace of God, teaches us these things? So as we're thinking about telling people to follow Christ, where, where is the most clear expression of Christ-likeness? Or what it means to be Christ-like? It's the gospel. It, it's showing them and pulling apart different components of the doctrines of salvation and helping them see the beauty of God, uh, the purposes of God. Why did, why did Jesus Christ die? There's a myriad of reasons. Right? Like, did, he, did Jesus Christ die to reconcile you to God? 
So therefore, we should be people who within our relationship are reconcilers. Right? Or we could say that we should be people who make peace because God made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Or we could say you must be forgiving because God in his very expression of gospel love offers us forgiveness. So you must forgive. And if you don't forgive like your Father in heaven has forgiven you, the Bible indicates he won't forgive you, which indicates that's a proof of salvation. It's gospel rejection on a practical scale. So we have doctrinal rejection. We're really clear on that. If you say Jesus Christ isn't God, we're like, well, yeah, you're not saved. But then if we say, I don't have to forgive, everyone's like, well, you really need to. What we probably should say is, well, that's gospel rejection. Like the, 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 the theological significance of one is so clear. You've denied the deity of Christ. You can't be saved. But we, we, we don't deal with gospel rejection on practice oftentimes as disciples. So if, someone, if you're meeting with someone and you're like, wow, you've gone through a really hard time. I mean, if, if you went to some of the worst things, you know, we have people within our church who have been abused. We have people within our church who have suffered deeply at the hands of others. Do they have a pass on forgiveness? So when you find them holding on to sin and bitter, we need to challenge gospel application. Like, are, are you someone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, yeah. Do you believe he forgives? Yeah. Would you use the word infinite for his love and offer forgiveness? Yeah. So why are you, when God offers you an opportunity to reflect his deep, infinite forgiveness by forgiving deeply, not nearly infinite, but deeply, why do you think you're not expected to? Well, if you knew how deeply I was hurt. No, that's not the question I asked you. I know you're deeply hurt. But can I just be honest? You and I are never as deeply hurt, nor do we as deeply forgive, as God through Christ forgave us. And, and, and like, there's two problems there. Like, they are overvaluing their injury and undervaluing the forgiveness of Christ. And so, like, I mean, we've got to be patient with people, but, but helping them see that that is actually gospel denial in practice. That's why the, the gospel, the grace of God, teaches us something. It, it doesn't merely teach us truth. It teaches us life, how to do this. Um, anyway, I think this is a, a really fantastic passage. And then you come to verse 15, and this is where, man, in our culture, this is so unacceptable. This is really, really not okay. Titus is told, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with what? All authority. Authority is the ugly four-letter word of our culture. It really is. You think about the last five years and the ways in which um, authority has done some of it to itself, but our culture delights in the failure of leaders. And sometimes those are true, and sometimes those are imagined failures. But does anyone trust medical authorities right now on a national scale? Does anyone trust political authorities on a national scale? Are we very just incredulous about their claims? Like, like we do not trust them. They have no credibility. Okay, but at the end of the day, whether that's their fault or not, like, there's a downstream effect where parents have a hard time leading children in the homes 
because children don't think parents have the right to be their authority? I'm just going to tell you, biblically, that authority doesn't seem to end until marriage. I think a foolish parent tries to tell a single 33-year-old son where he should work and tells him when to be home, 9.30 p.m. At the same time, I don't see anything in Scripture that would indicate that parental authority is severed, whether it's mom or dad, until marriage. So again, I'm not, I'm not encouraging any of you with adult children who are single to start demanding they eat their vegetables. But, but I don't think if you did, your child has the freedom to righteously say no. I don't think the Bible gives them that freedom ever. So my children are having fun because I, according to them, now only have five children. Because Sydney is now an adult. She's 18. I've made it clear to Sydney, I don't care. <laughs> that cuts two ways, doesn't it? She's still my child. I love her like a child. I'll parent her like, a, like one of my precious children. At the same time, it's not as though she turned 18. I'm like, okay, Sydney, let me know where you're going to live. I'd like to visit sometime. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, think, I think she still has a duty to obey me. And I'm not going to parent her the same way I parent a four-year-old in my home, but at the same time, she's still called to, to live in the, the shadow of the gospel, to live in its patterns, and that would mean things like living under the authority of her church and her home. That being the case, I think Titus is given a high call that's probably culturally hard for him, but it is for us too. As disciples, your authority is not derived, nor is Titus's, from his own character or wisdom, but from what? The right understanding, sound doctrine, and the right application, the grace of God trains us. That's, it arises from the source, which is ultimately God. Now, I think Titus, as positionally given that job of shepherding, uh, there is inherently some positional authority that maybe you wouldn't share as a discipler. But listen, there is no greater authority than God's word. So when rightly divided and applied, you should teach and call people with authority. You do a disservice to the person if you do the reverse, right? Like, hey, you should just consider obeying. Like, I would be really concerned about your counsel to my daughter if you're like, you know, you should listen to your dad, but you really don't have to obey him. <laughs> you better not call her to obey God's word with kind of this soft recommendation because the inverse is she's hearing very clearly a recommendation is not a mandate by God. So as a discipler, our authority derives from Scripture. So I think the next part of that, if you go up to Proverbs, I love this section of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs and Hebrew generally has a little more obscurity than Greek. Greek is a very precise language. Um, you know how English has like 1,800 different rules for different things and you can never get it right, it seems? Hebrew has some of that same feel to it a little bit. So you'll find different translations. And um, I, I think this is just the ESV here. That's usually my default setting. So um, it says, The wise heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So I'm a discipler. And I might be speaking with authority, but I should also speak with what? Why do I want to speak with sweet speech? That's, that's hard to say. Ten times fast, and I'd mess it up. Why do we speak with sweet speech? Because I want to move them. Right? As a discipler, I'm not like, hey, do you want the green pill or red pill? I don't care. I want to call them to what's good and godly. So I want, to, I want to have sweet speech. So a discerning person increases their persuasiveness through sweet speech. 
Not harsh speech. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. Let me just, like, the parallel there tells me that good sense from the instructor gives life to the instructee. But fools, their instruction is folly. And there are some of you, you don't have wisdom in your life. You probably should hold off on recommending someone else to live a certain way. Now, the solution is not to not lead others ever. The solution is to get your act together. You know, it's Matthew. Take the beam out of your eye first before doing splinter surgery on your neighbor's eye. Right? There's a principle of me. Like, I must lead myself before I can lead others. Okay, so a good sense of fountain of life. Verse 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Judiciousness seems to be a filter, right? Like, like saying what you say with less words that are more precise. Right? It's not word soup and you hope they catch your drift. Uh, so I think, I think parents, we can, we can fail in this one. I think uh, my, my father-in-law would at times, like, I think my mother-in-law was more like disciplined. You'd take the kids and do their business and leave. And, and it would be like, you know, three swats and you're out. My father-in-law was a three-hour lecture. Kids would prefer the spanking. <laughs> like, that lecture was just sheer misery for the kids. Um, I, I think a judicious person tries to make sure their speech leads to healing. It's clear. It's thoughtful. It's biblical. Um, and again, continue on. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. They add sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So if you're a good discipler, what are you trying to do with your person you're working with? Do you want health? Do you, I mean, so, so again, we look at the verse, gracious words. Listen, words that rebuke can be gracious, but they can also crush the soul. And, and so sometimes you have to deliver rebuke, but, but it should be done in such a way that it lends a sweetness and a life-giving principle to the people who are hearing it. Um, there is a way that seems right to man, but it's end in death. This is probably the breaking into a new section, but I thought it was just so relevant to the whole context of discipling. This is one of the problems for which discipleship is needed. There's a way that seems right to man. Let me just full stop on that. It seems what? Right, so imagine the situation. You're at the discipleship center, Starbucks. You're, you're sitting there talking to this person over a good cup of coffee, and they think they have it figured out. They think what they're doing is right. So, so as a discipler, you're seeing that they think what, that they're doing and what they're going to do and their plans are right. This verse doesn't say there's a way that seems wrong to man, and he knows it, but he's going to do it anyway. Right? This, is not, this is not the heart of a rebel. This is the mind of a dummy. He's got it wrong. He doesn't know it. So he needs help. But you're going to sit down at that coffee shop and you're going to say, hey, what's your plan for X, Y, or Z? How are you going to handle this 19-year-old kid that's just killing your home? How are you going to handle this situation in which you, you see um, your spouse making decisions that are financially challenging to you? How are you going to respond to this? Well, if they're natural, that is, if they're responding in ways that are not spirit-driven, scripture-driven, they're going to think they have it right, but it's not biblical. What your job as a, as a discipler is to help them see that that will end in what? Death. 
<laughs> and, and I think we could probably say, and all the consequences leading up to death. Right? Death is kind of the ultimate. So I would assume that there's a lesser that, that, is, that is part of this context. That is the, the foolish decision that seems right to the natural person who doesn't have Scripture or the Spirit which, again, the point would warn all of us that thinking unbiblically leads to destruction, ruin, and ultimately death. And the, and the job of a discipler is to be the voice of God for that person because they're not seeing life well. They're not seeing clearly. They don't understand scriptures that apply. Or maybe they're not discerning well. Maybe they have Christian influences who are rockheads. Right? Like... I think we discount how oftentimes people are getting counsel from all the wrong places. And we think in one hour of discipleship a week, we can unravel and point them in the right direction. And every song they hear, every friend they talk to that's a peer is, is giving them bad advice. I, was just, I just mentioned this to someone yesterday. We were at the picnic, and he's kind of lamenting kind of the challenge in marriage today, but it's in the proliferation of divorce and, and immorality. It's no doubt to me that if you have coworkers that care deeply about you and you're complaining about your spouse, they will cheer you on. And then if you're deciding to leave your spouse, they'll say, yeah, you need to do what's good for you. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. And so as Christian, as Christian disciples, we have got to be equipped to think through and persuasively communicate with sweetness that gives life to the soul and with judicious words how to plead to that person to follow the path of life. Okay, that's, that's, I think, part of the issue of, of teaching and instructing. And sometimes that means bold rebuke. Sometimes it means gentle correction. Um, so we start here. Lesson two, flip over. First, evaluate. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears it, it is folly and shame. I think one of my Achilles heels in counseling sometimes is I think I know what they need to hear before I actually hear what the problem is. I mean, how would you go with a doctor like that, right? You, you go to the emergency room, and he's like, hey, listen, I just want you to take these uh, antibiotics. And you're like, we're here for an ultrasound? Like, like, don't you expect that they would ask some evaluation questions before just dropping a prescription on your plate? I think that has to happen in counseling, too. You evaluate, and you understand the situation. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Okay, so I want, to be a, I want to be a righteous counselor, which means part of the, the implication for righteous counselors is they do what? Well, they, they ponder. They think. It's not merely that they listen, but when they listen, they think how best to answer. They're thoughtful in their diagnosis and words back to the person who's pouring out the troubles. Psalm 37.30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. Where, where is the singular source of wisdom? Scripture, right? Scripture and all that derives from it. God's truth is true truth. And so we, we start there. Okay, so, so we start with just an evaluation of the person and their situation. Um, I don't think I have this in there, but I think Hebrews, oh, I guess I have it later, but Hebrews 5.11 is, is helpful for me where he says, you know, you should be discerning at this time, but you're not. Instead, I have to give you the milk. So he's done that evaluation, right? He's looking at the people he's writing to, and he's like, I wish I could give you a filet. I wish I could give you some good theological practical steak. And here's some baby food instead because you can't handle it. All right. 
like as counselors, sometimes you know, recognizing who we're talking to and where they're at spiritually um, should, should lead us to careful speech in, in light of the counselee. Okay, I think 2 Timothy 3 is probably one of the most um, cornerstone passages on how we counsel others, how we disciple them. 2 Timothy 3.16, the well-worn verse, rightly so, all scripture is breathed out by God. That leads it to profitability. That's the, the, the logic he has, right? He's saying, because God gave it to us through divine work, it is therefore of this quality. Right? Like if you, you have your best artist do his best work, you would assume, therefore, it has quality. So God being the producer of every word means it has this quality. Well, what quality is he going to talk about? It is profitable. That means it will accomplish its task. What is its task? Let's give four words. Teaching, reproof, correction, training. So I, 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 if you look at teaching and reproof, those seem to be more doctrinally oriented. And correction and training are more practically oriented. So there, there seems to be a rhythm there that, that there is both Scripture telling us what to think and what not to think. Scripture tells us what to do and what not to do. And in such, it's, it's, it's the capstone for all that we are. Right? Like we're, we're embodied spirits. So it tells, it basically is, it's shepherding my spirit to reject the theological toxins of the world and embrace what is good for me in my thinking and in my spirit. And it's telling me how to walk it's telling me how not to walk. I think it's basically Proverbs, right? There's, there's wisdom, and it lives and walks the path of life. And then there's folly, and it lives in such a way that it walks the path that leads to death. Right? So, so it's, it's wisdom versus folly, and their outcomes, life versus death. And that's really what you see here in 2 Timothy. Wisdom, or in this case, teaching, so that we have lives that are correct path of life. And then we have folly. And so that needs to be reproved. And, and then it needs to be done in such a way that, that we're then not walking in a way that needs to be corrected. All right. So we teach people. That implies that the discipler does what? What would you expect of most teachers that teach your children? Would you want them to be one grade ahead? Okay, my second grader this year has a third grade teacher. And by that I mean a teacher who's in the third grade. <laughs> is that what you want? Or do you want a teacher who's graduated college maybe? <laughs> I mean, isn't that usually one of the prerequisites we want? I mean, even now in California, don't we have to have certifications on top of like college graduates, right? But why? Why do we have that requirement? Because the expectation that is teachers have been taught. They understand the material. They have some expertise to share. So if you are doctrinally or practically not sound, get sound. So that you can be obedient to Jesus' command, which calls you to make disciples and to train them to obey him. All right, so then we motivate them. I thought Isaiah 35 was a really just like, captures in a nutshell a counselor's heart or a discipler's heart. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. 
Now, that's a call to God's people, and probably on two, two, two ways they should receive it. First, they need to, to do that themselves. They need to look at what God is doing and find hope in it. And I think the point then is really clear in verse 4. They are to give that hope to others. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. I'm talking about the impending sorrows of the land and how God is going to bring justice on the conquering Assyrians. So as you look at a passage like that, I think that's kind of the counselor's job, right? To say, hey, hey, there's some things that are weak. Hebrews 12 quotes us in light of God's chastening. So, so when you come along with someone who is spiritually struggling, what do you want to give them? Well, if, if they're discouraged, hope, but he says initially strength, right? Strength because they're weak. We want to help them because they have feeble knees. Now, now, the analogy in Hebrew seems to indicate that those with weak legs get crippled if those legs don't get strength before they try to walk on them. You know, it's, it's like um, a, maybe a player in some, some like pro sport in the playoffs sprains his ankle badly but wants to keep playing on it, so he does. And because of that, he plants wrong and then breaks his ankle. He would have been a whole lot better off to get health before going back out on the court. And, and so sometimes spiritually, we have those spiritual sprains. The goal of that is that we fix them, not that we just keep living life as though nothing is weak. Um, so that's the counselor's job, to assess and to help bring strength. Now, how do they do this in this passage in Isaiah 35? How do you offer hope? Be strong, fear not. Why? Because the word of God has promised us God is coming. God is coming for you. He will, he will be our rescuer. He will bring justice on the invading armies, and he will rescue his people. God has, in fact, a glorious plan to rescue Israel. God is coming. Do not be afraid. So there's a call to understand God's plan, to understand the character of God, to hope in God, and that should strengthen the discouraged and the fearful heart, to bring strength to them that they can face life and not hurt themselves more spiritually by living in hopelessness. So I, I think that's what we do as disciples is like we, we evaluate what's gone on and then we teach and instruct and then call them to be motivated. So we work, we work on their affections and their feelings as you see them. So you can, do this, you can see this happening in all sorts of ways. For instance, you go back to a parent in a home who's maybe at the place where their children won't obey unless they express anger intensely. What would you tell that parent? Okay, we could just start with a simple admonition. You do realize that anger is, generally speaking, who's, who's, who, does that mean you, Natalie? Yeah, yes. I mean, sometimes simplicity is so good. Anger, generally speaking, is sin. What else might you tell them? Not only are you sinning when you do anger, but you're actually stirring up sin of, the, of anger within your children, probably. Or you might, uh, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 25, says something like, do not be friends with an angry man unless you learn his ways and be like him. 
So not only are you stirring your children to anger, you're exampling and training them towards it too. So do you think your anger is helping? Right? So, so maybe we're working on that sense. Jeff, did you have something you'd add? Okay, you're not dealing with the heart? Do you want to amplify that at all? Because I agree with you. I just don't know what you're going, where you're going down that trail. Okay, yeah, that's fantastic. And that was one of my, my big thoughts, I think, through anger. Anger is actually a call to idolatry. Okay, so, so I train Junior, beware of the wrath of Dad. But real wisdom is fear of the Lord. So I'm calling him to a very human-centered wisdom, but a human-centered value is like, I better not do X, Y, or Z because, man, Dad, dad will come down hard. I'm calling him to a very man-centered approach to life and ultimately to worship me. I'm not angry about the sin. I'm angry about the sin against me if I'm angry like that, right? So I'm making this totally man-centered. And I, I, would, I would probably at that point also bring up James 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you want righteousness for your child? Well, yeah, that's why I'm so angry. Well, let me just tell you, your anger is actually pushing him away from the righteousness of God. It's not only not working and producing what you say you want, you're sinning by doing it, and you're stirring your child to temptation of idolatry and more anger. Man, that will motivate me. Like, you're not helping. You're hurting. Yeah, but when I'm angry, they start obeying. It's not the type of obedience God honors. It's man-centered obedience. Yeah, maybe we'd want to caution that not all anger is sin, but if you're expressing it by yelling at your kid and what's causing them to move is not fear of God, but fear of you, you're sinning. But it's, it's I think most parents should have some sense of anger when they see their child hurt another child of theirs. Right? Like the, the defense and the protection of that other child is actually a righteous obligation you have. And so there might be a sense. But generally speaking, I think in Scripture, we want to give them very little room for their flesh to be acted out in their home. Andy? Right. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of ways we could go, but what I find most of the time in counseling is what that person wants is sympathy. Like, oh, man, yeah, I'd, I'd be angry too if I had a kid like that. Or maybe um, methods to how to do better. But I think we have to start with what are you doing and why, and let's unpack that for righteous motivations. Like let's move you to the right place in how you're thinking. Um, I also think in some of this stuff, people are just a little bit lost. And I'm not trying to be unkind with that, but have you ever been doing what you think is right and then someone comes along and it's like, hmm, have you thought about this? And you're like, what is wrong with me? How could I have never thought of that? Anyone else ever? I've had that happen. And, and sometimes we kind of get myopic, like tunnel vision. We're just zoomed in on, on something, and we're missing the big picture. That's where good friends and good counselors, disciples come in and really, really help. You know, just to be asking the questions, pulling, pulling the different threads that they're laying out in front of you as they're asking for help or as you're praying with them and working through them. Um, I, I recently had a, a situation where someone was coming to me, a kind of complex, difficult, painful situation, 
I just kind of went back to basics, like, hey, what's your goal here? And the person basically like, I, I don't know. Because it was just like overwhelming. I'm like, well, let me just, I know this is really simple, but honor God. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, it, there was nothing profound or wise in what I said. It was just like, I, anyone knows that as a Christian. What's your singular duty? Westminster Catechism, number one, is to do what? Glorify God. And here's a person lost in the details. Life has is, is got so many different things coming at them, and it's like, hey, just back up. It's not, it's not complex in the big picture. What's your job here? Honor God. Okay, does God tell you what to do in your role here? Yeah. Okay, so what are they? And it's like two or three are just like so obvious in Scripture. And you just see the relief come to this person I was working with. It's like any one of you would have had the right answers to give them that framework. But man, when you're in the middle and things are coming at you fast, you can lose sight of the big picture and the, the major values you have and should have as a Christian. One of the sweet goals of a counselor is just to say, hey, what's your first priority in all of life? Let's still do what? Glorify God, please and honor your Savior. I mean, you can say it 20 different ways, but we're getting at the same thing, right? So that's why I have that little pyramid over for you. Are, are you have you considered... Now, there should be an and there that just disappeared when I hit print, so sorry about that, but it's God's people and your family. So I don't know why family dropped off there, but it's supposed to say in family. I, I think both of those things are pretty, they're more important than your neighbor. But I think your neighbor's pretty important too. So God's people and your family, I think those generally are held in balance together. That is, I don't think I should lose my family for the sake of the church, nor lose the church for the sake of my family. And I do see people get it wrong on both ends of the spectrum. But I think if God has called me to be a godly pastor, and part of my qualifications for being a godly pastor is ruling my house well, and then he tells like Timothy and Titus to be examples that, at least implicitly, you all have that same expectation on you. Not to be pastors, but to be godly people within the church and to manage your household responsibilities well. And if that's the case, good pastors don't lose their families. Uh, or maybe I shouldn't say better. <clears throat> they don't mismanage their families and thereby lose them. Nor do godly family men call their children away from the church or let their children drift away from the church. So I think good families support the church as a primary expression of love for Christ. They are not enemies. They are friends. I think if you have an ungodly family, that you have got to be willing to prioritize the church over the ungodly family. That's where I think 1 Corinthians 7 gives us that qualification for divorce. So if you have an unbelieving spouse, and they kind of say, hey, it's, it's either the church or me, you say, well, I got I to gotta stay at the church, but I don't want to lose you, so you're welcome to stay with me, so let me just reverse this on you. It's me and the church, or it's not me. I think that's 1 Corinthians 7, 15, really clearly. Um, but, but I think, generally speaking, godly families and godly churches are the best of friends. So every once in a while, I, I, I think our tendency in our culture, church culture, is to swing the pendulum against the culture that really is breaking apart the home. But we're not, we're not to set our theology as opposite of the world, but by Scripture. So we don't actually strengthen our family nor the church by being anti-world. We reject the world and its worldliness, but it's not always 100 degrees, well, it's not 100 degrees, it's not always opposite, it's not 180 degrees wrong. So we don't just go the opposite direction totally. Okay, 
Um, so a couple of things I just kind of teasing out in my own mind as I think through why people struggle. Is it a doctrinal problem? I mean, is this, is this, do they know what God says? Is it doctrinal? Are they skeptical? Like, are they like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to obey my parents, but I'm 24. Okay, well, then I probably need to take them to scriptures where it's pretty clear. I mean, I would just go to like, I mean, have you ever thought that Isaac was 40 years old when dad sent a servant man to go date for him? And Isaac isn't complaining. I can tell you, if I had a 40-year-old daughter, I'm like, hey, listen, I got this covered. And I'm like, hey, Roman, now you're kind of one of the assistants here, and I just need some work done. Can, can you go down to TMU and find Sydney a husband? And then I hear his prayer. God, when I go to the cafeteria, whoever gives me a drink of water, that'll be the one. Roman comes home and is like, Mark, I found him. And I'm like, Sydney, here he is. Can you imagine the submission required of her? Can you imagine the terror in her soul? I, okay, so let me, let me okay, counsel here for a moment. Give me some place in Scripture where the theology of marriage or the theology of parenting changes ever. Those have been stable since the garden. I'm sure we can find someone willing and eager. I don't think that will be the issue. I'm just saying, like, like when you look at Scripture and you go to our culture, our culture is telling you you're independent at 18 and Scripture says, no, you're not. But, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to preach a sermon on 19-year-olds obey your parents in the Lord very often. But let me just tell you really clearly, obey your parents in the Lord and with Genesis 2, the man's obligation is to leave and to cling. And at that point, I think the parental authority is broken. Right? That's, this is just what Scripture says. Well, I find that's the type of thing in our culture you're going to have to deal with a skeptic on. Because most people have been trained to think they're independent. Again, a wise parent probably is not telling their kids some of the minor decisions in their life, but, or mandating them. I don't recommend dating your, like having a friend date your child's spouse for you. That's probably not a great way to go. Um, is it a practical problem? Sometimes it's just practice. They know what's right, but they're just not seeing it well. Sometimes it's a trust problem. They think if they obey God, they're going to lose out on something. Right? Like, if, if I do what God says, then X, Y, or Z will be a disappointing prospect for me. Um, like, for instance, if I give to God sacrificially, and let's just say 10%, I, I, I wouldn't be able to afford my rent. Well, I, th- I think at that point, you have a worship trust problem. So, so deal with it as a counselor, as a discipler. Um, is it a, is it a disturb- discernment problem? I think discernment is one of those things where you're taking clear Scripture, moving to implication, and moving then to application, and somewhere usually in implication and application, they're missing it. Right? So, so in, I mean, this might be in regard to like standards of behavior, um, application of cultural norms to Christian life, and when we reject them, when we embrace them, 
But a lot of times you have people who love Jesus, want to obey Jesus and everything, and are just not seeing where there's a disconnect. Um, is, is, a motivation, is there a motivation problem? Is there rebellion, fatigue, fear, etc.? Is relief more important than righteousness? You know, so we, we've had this happen, in, and I can't think of any particular person right now, but where I'm pleading with people to stay in marriages, and they basically say, uh, like, he or she will never change. I'm done. I give up. I quit. And, and I, I just think, man, that's, I get it. And some of you may feel that way, like with your children or your spouse or your job. It's just like, you're tired. You're worn. Um, so, so that's where you motivate. Have subtle loves, like love for money. Encourage in the love for Christ. Or oppose themselves to the love of Christ. Have good responsibilities. Um, overrun the other. Right? Like, again, I, I use church and family again. It's possible for me to be so invested in my family, I lose sight of my responsibilities to God's people, or vice versa. Um, point four here. What, will, what, what does this person truly value when they get to heaven? Help them to live for heaven. Finally, apply it. Call them to action. Um, without any planning on my part, this is almost exactly my sermon in some form that I'll be preaching in about 40 minutes. Because I'm, I'm in Philippians where he's like, practice these things. He's coming to the end where he's basically saying, take action which is the very last point of my discipleship thing. So apparently the Lord wants us to have the one-two punch this morning, that we should be disciplers. Listen, discipling is not, not just a serious responsibility. It is a mandate on all of us to be engaged in the process. So let's do it. Let's, let's be godly, be sound in doctrine, and then be reproducing others that share that same faithfulness to Christ, love for him, and help one another follow after Christ. And I find with you all probably, I am encouraged by multiple different types of people in various stratas of maturity, right? So, so sometimes it's just really encouraging when someone sees something and they're like, man, that was really encouraging that you did X, Y, or Z, or like, you know, is that really the way you should talk to your daughter? You know, even questions like that by someone who may feel totally unqualified to disciple me have a massive effect on my life. So I think sometimes we make discipleship a massive relationship of obligation and study and research and training. It could be that. And sometimes it's simply having a cup of coffee with someone and asking them a solid question like, hey, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Are, are you doing okay in your spiritual life? And we're just calling them to evaluate and follow after Christ. So whether it's big or small, be disciple makers. I'll see you in about 20 minutes back here.